if you're like most entrepreneurs, you really don't have a place that you fit in. In fact, most of us don't fit in. But the man I'm about to introduce you to doesn't fit in in a lot of places. In fact, he didn't fit in as a bricklayer. He didn't fit in as a nightclub bouncer. But what he does do, he built an incredible business providing access and went from laying bricks to moving mountains. Helping business owners in growth mode go farther, faster. This is Entree Grow. Steve Sims, welcome to the Entree Grow podcast. Great to see you again, my friend. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Steve, you know, most entrepreneurs, and I know you know this better than anyone, don't seem to have a place that they fit. They're like the square peg in the round hole. How did you navigate that as a young man? And, and how did you figure out how to do it? I, I think I navigated it badly. Um, it was in the 80s and 90s. And this was at a time before we had social networks and Instagram to show me how inadequate my life was. So I was just growing up at a time going, well, this aggravates me. I don't like to do this. Why am I doing it? And I realized that most entrepreneurs are pretty much constantly pissed off until they're not. And I just spent my younger years just being aggravated. And as a big lad that rode around on a motorcycle, this was not a good look. But I, I knew I didn't want to be a bricklayer for the rest of my life. I didn't know I, I knew I didn't want to be a, a doorman for the rest of my life. I just knew I didn't want to do what I was doing. And I think that's the big difference with an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur just goes, well, this isn't working. I'm off to find out what does. And then those others, the entrepreneurs, and I'm not saying it's bad, but the other mentality goes, well, I'll, I'll leave what I've got when I've got something better. Entrepreneurs don't do that. We jump out of the frying pan into the volcano and just paddle our way through it. So I went through uh, truck driving, doorman, cake sales, uh, life insurance, door-to-door -door book sales. Can you imagine me knocking on your door at eight o'clock at night? You know, buy these books. Um, it wasn't Scare very the good. the shit I, out of people. I know it was terrible, but I would try all of these different things because I realized then not trying was where the problem lied. You know, not actually getting up in the day and trying to go for something different that would improve me. And I didn't know what it's like, but like, how do you know you like sushi until you try sushi? Right. So I literally just went out and just tried as, as many things as I could, failed in pretty much all of them. But that failure uh, exposed me to where my talents were until I discovered the hole that basically I created that I fit in. You know, Steve, uh, reading your book, uh, Bluefish, I remember very distinctly reading that book and and going, wow, that you're describing me. And I think most entrepreneurs <laughs> have that same, like, there's this constant hunger. There's this need to to try things and, and progress. And failure doesn't really scare us. Failure is kind of proof that we did it. And that's not the right thing for us. How did you how did you stumble or find your way into providing access and creating these incredible experiences for your clients? Because that was really, to me, the most fascinating thing. You created a business that didn't exist and how you did it is remarkable. I think we, I don't think we're very different at all. 
Um, and in fact, I, I would. Well, go you've as got far a you've got a badass accent, and you're not terrified to ride motorcycles. So we are very fucking different. We're yeah, we're different in those <laughs> in those elements. But, but I believe that when you get into a room of entrepreneurs, there's a kinship, there's a connection, and I think if you sliced us in half or did an autopsy or something like that. I reckon you'd find like a purple gene or, you know, a blood cell or something that meant that that was in all entrepreneurs because there's something about us that on the outside is vastly different. But when it comes down to that core, we all think the same. We all lead with purpose. We all focus. We all need to dominate. We all, we all misfits until we fit. And so I think there's something very similar. I remember when I was younger, and of course we have different advantages now, but when I was younger, I had no one I could talk to. You know, I, I would go into my pub and I would talk with a boat, bunch of broke-ass bikers, which, in effect, created me as a broke-ass biker. You know, the second I would say something about, oh, I remember going in there one day and I had applied for a job as an insurance salesman. And the thing I really loved about this was I actually got to wear a shirt and tie, whereas being on the building site, you just, you know, you got crapped on every day. It didn't matter what you wore. But now I was going to be in air conditioning. I wouldn't be wet. So for me, I'm seeing advantages. But right. when I went into the pub that night, I went, oh, you're not going to believe this. I got a job as an insurance salesman. They were like, oh, that's going to fail. You're never going to. And they all jeered me down. Right. And I remember there was one guy that didn't. And he, funny enough, became the best man at my uh, my wedding and is still my best man, uh, best friend even to today. But there was one guy that went, go for it, Steve. You know, please go for it. And he, you know, challenged me and pushed me forward. But everybody else was no. And they were cheering away, uh, jeering away. And I noticed that we've got to, they say that you are the combination of the five people that you are with. I also realized that you are the room that you're in. And it was funny I remember hearing them all jeering at me. And while I should have been, I don't know, offended, or maybe I should have thought, oh, maybe they're right. I was hearing a different tune. For the first time ever, I was seeing these people that didn't want me to leave that bucket. They didn't want me to try something different for fear it would show how inadequate they were. And that was the thing that was revealed to me. It was very startling. Steve, there's in a- fact, there's, I, will, I will finish off. That was, a, that was a final day I went into that pub. That's amazing. There is a theme that runs through my episodes and through these conversations. And that is a very consistent theme of auditing your friend list. Audit who you hang out with. Because those kinds of friends, like the guys that you were talking about in the pub, they're kind of like crabs. Now, I'm, I'm talking about crabs when they are captured, when they're in a bucket. And somebody goes to pull a crab out. All of the other crabs grab them by the leg and pull them back in. And there's, this, there's a reason they do that. They don't want the other crab to leave them. And it sounds like you had a bunch of crabs pulling you back in which is very common, very consistent. So there's a theme in these episodes that I talk about, man, you got to audit who you spend time with, because if you're spending time with people that are, and I, and I don't want to put them down, but people who don't have ambition, people who are not driven, you're going to lose your drive and ambition because they're going to pull you back to the level they're in versus like, I like to spend time with billionaires and millionaires who have done way better than I have, who've done way more and built way more because you want to rise to their level. You want to 
do what they do, achieve what they've achieved, exceed them. And that really motivates you. At least for me, it does. It fires me up when I see people who are absolutely crushing it at what they do. Well, that was the, that was the, the drive for me. That was the fuel I saw. Um, I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be rich. Did I know what either of those things looked like? Hell no, because I had no one around me that was either of those. Um, but I just wanted it. I desired it. I lasted for it. And I went after it because I wanted to meet a rich person. And I wanted to be able to say to him, why are you rich and I'm not? That's, that was what I wanted to do. Now, I found from weirdly working on the door, which I thought was the lowest ep of my life. I thought when I got the door job, being a big, ugly guy, my job was to go back into the club at night and dance with a guy that had too many beards and, and start swapping slaps. That's what my job description was, you know, be the meathead of the night. And I just thought to myself, my God, I couldn't have got any lower but it gave me a pedestal to be able to view social acceptance. It gave me a view of what humanity was like and how they bought it. Give you an example. People would walk to the front door and either they would walk up to the meatheads and go, evening lads, I'm looking for a nice table for me and my partner or whatever. And we would let them in. Or they would naturally choose to go and stand in a line. There was natural selection at that moment. Now we never, we never used to say to people, Hey, Get in the line, fella. We never used to do that, but they would select. And there was a lot of people there that were very wealthy that I started communicating with. And I needed to create a Trojan horse. I knew it even then. I needed to create a reason for them to talk to me so I could ask them the questions I needed to ask, which in turn would put me in a room full of rich people, which again, if you are the combination of your room, I would become rich. I ended up launching the world's most uh, successful experiential concierge firm just out of, of satisfying these people needs. I never meant to do it. I never wanted to do it. Love this. And it was always a Trojan horse for me to be able to be in a room full of billionaires and to see how they acted, spoke, even walked. And it was all different to how poor people walk. And I knew that because guess what? I was poor. I knew what that was like. And anyone out there says, hey, money can't buy happiness. Trust me, you haven't had any. Because when you do, you can start looking after your family. You can start supporting your friends. You can start supporting charities. You need to be selfish and strong in order to be able to help other people. All right. Now, podcast peeps, listen, what Steve said was so critical just then in that moment. He scratched an itch, right? He scratched an itch and that itch turned into a business and it happened by accident. And I've shared this story about ad zombies, my, my global copywriting firm. We, I didn't start this business to build a multi-million dollar copywriting business. I started it because somebody needed help in a Facebook group. I scratched an itch because I'm a creative, wrote the ad, built a business, right? It You can build remarkable businesses just satisfying the inner need. And if you find a business, if you find a service that's needed, uh, a, an audience that's needing help in an area, and you can build a business around that, a livelihood around that, man, it's, it's remarkable because you could do this every day and it never feels like work. It's effortless and you enjoy every minute of it. So let's talk, let's dive into the concierge business you built because 
to me, I just thought it was the coolest thing. Like imagine, <laughs> so, so let me give you kind of the nerd factor for me. You know, I remember when Billy Joel first uh, released the album, The Bridge, and I was, and this was back in the day, I was literally on the 59th Street Bridge coming back into Manhattan and sitting next to me in a traffic jam was Billy Joel, his wife, Christy Brinkley, then at the time, and their new baby, Alexa Ray. And the nanny was with it. And I said, Alexa, and now she thinks I'm talking to her. Stupid technology. Anyway, and I had like a moment because we were both stuck in this traffic jam and it was like unlimited access to somebody that I thought was just amazing as a musician and like as a person. And then he's got this hot wife, right? Like all of these things. And I had instant access, but it was karma. It was timing that brought us together, nothing else. You take the timing out of it. You take the accidents out of it and you make things happen for people. Tell us how that business started and how it grew. I'd love to hear that story and share that entrepreneurial journey a little bit with our listeners. So while I was, uh, while I was the doorman, uh, and I was actually in Hong Kong. So I was in London. I moved to Hong Kong because uh, I wanted to get away from all of my people. And at the time, I managed to talk my way into getting a job in Hong Kong. I lasted one day, and now I was uh, without a job in Hong Kong. I got a job as a doorman, and that's where I started seeing people coming in. And there was this group of four guys that used to turn up at this club every few nights, straight after work, they'd have some drinks, and then they'd end up staying most of the night. And I remember that they had the watches, they had the suits, they looked good, they interacted. They were always with different girls, but they were always incredibly polite. These were the guys that I wanted to be. I used to look at these people and go, I want to be one of those boys. I want to be able to go out with, you know, five of my mates all dressed up, looking good and not worrying about the bar tab. Now, I remember one big turning story that happened. One pivotal moment was I had been called back into the club and, um, you know, had to kind of, like, you know, calm some people down. And I was then after that, I was stood at the bar just perusing the club, making sure everything's going okay. And the four guys had a booth. They had a bunch of bottles there. They had one of the hostesses looking after them, and they had a bunch of girls that had, you know, clinged on to these four good-looking rich guys. The hostess walked up, and I always jokingly call it the tip flirt. You know when they give you the bill and they go, hey, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Okay, you're such a lovely family. Hoping those last few words are going to make you increase your tip. Right. So that's the tip flirt. Um, this hostess walked up to them, put the uh, the little leather wallet down uh, with the tab in it and did a little flirt. Can I, thanks guys, she has been great looking up and everyone ignored her. Now, they were more, uh, um, they were more focused on the girls that they were with. It's a club, that stuff happens. The hostess wasn't dejected, she walked away. But my eye caught that, caught something. The guy turned around, grabbed the wallet, jumped up and run for her. Okay, it's only like three or four steps to catch up to her. But of course, you know, as I was the doorman and I was sober, I picked up on this. And so I stood up thinking, hang on, what is this guy doing? And I was ready to, to, to interject. And he tapped her. And I remember that he didn't grab her arm. He didn't grab her waist. Anything. He just tapped her on the shoulder like she was molten lava and not wanting to burn himself. But more importantly, not wanting to manhandle or offend her. 
And he's like, oh, oh, excuse me. And she turned around and he went, I am so sorry. I didn't notice you put this down. It's been a great night. Thank you for looking after me. He gets out his card, sticks it in a wallet and gives it to her. Now, he had been both respectful, humble, polite. Those things really impressed me. But what really caught me was he didn't even check the tab. He was so... Now, this was my first introduction with someone with, with money. Now, I know this may break everyone's myth, but bars wait until everyone's drunk and then they slap a couple of extra drinks on your bill, you know? Shocker. That's how bars make money. Yeah, shocker. He didn't even check it. He knew that his card. Now, I was at a time in my life where I could go to a bar, I could go to the supermarket and I would know to the cent what was in my account for fear of me getting that extra loaf of bread and my credit card going, eh, eh, you know, charge declined. That was the world I was living in. This guy didn't even care. So I further wanted to be part of this guy's group. And then one night they came to, so I had to give you that context. One night they came over to the bar and by now as the doorman, I knew where all the best clubs were and all the parties. And I knew the celebrities that were coming in to, and I would tell my little circle that I was developing. Hey, what are you doing Thursday? Will Smith's going to be over here. What are you doing? You know, Tuesday, so-and-so is going to be, Oh, by the way, Mercedes are doing a private part. And I became that kind of Google of the early nineties nightlife. Okay. They came to me one day and they said, oh, you're going to the yacht party. And I was like, ah, I don't know. Now it's Hong Kong. Hong Kong is basically a harbor, you know, 360. I didn't know what yacht, what marina. I didn't know anything. So I said to them, well, which one are you talking about? They told me. And I went, are you going? And they went, oh, we can't get in. And I went, oh, let me make a phone call. Now, bear in mind, who was I going to phone, you know? And secondly, I didn't even have a phone. So, you know, this was a ridiculous thing. But what I did was I run down to the harbor. The harbors are never far away from you in Hong Kong. And I run down to the harbor. I saw the girl and I walked up to her and I said, hey, how you doing? Um, we got four guys, uh, four clients of mine that are coming to your party tonight. Very assumptive. Um, I know it starts at nine o'clock, but would you rather they got here at 8.30 and waited in line? Or would you prefer they got here at 10 o'clock when the crowds died down a bit? What would work for you? Okay. You made the assumptive ask- close yeah, on I four, do- four guys that weren't even invited to the party. Yeah. And also I was focusing on how it helped her. That's right. Now she turned around and here was the funny thing. And I remember this. She suddenly started flipping through her, her list. Now here was the dumb thing. I hadn't given her the client's names. Everybody has a knee jerk reaction and her knee jerk reaction was to start going through this list. And I said to her, Hey, I don't want to stress you out. I know tonight's going to be very busy for you. I'm just trying to work. What's going to be best for you. Again, establishing I'm thinking of her. You're putting her on the pedestal, which is I am. makes everybody feel great. Yeah. So she turned around, and I don't know what she said, 8.30 or 9.30 or 10 or whatever, but she gave me the time, and I went, thank you very much. And I reached in my pocket, and I pulled out 100 bucks. Now, bearing in mind, I was getting paid like about 500 to 600 bucks a week, and I was pulling out 100 bucks. So that was a big lump of change for what I was earning uh, sure. per night. 
And I gave it to her and I said, look, let's be honest. People are going to come here. They're going to party. They're going to have a great time, but they're not going to say thank you to you. People don't do that, I'm afraid. I said, but tomorrow night, grab yourself a bottle of wine and a takeaway and just be thankful it's over and that you, you scored a great party. And she was like, oh, thank you. And I gave her the 100 bucks and I walked away. Now, this is where it got risky. If she hadn't have stopped me, interject, whatever, I'm screwed because she never had the names. Right. She said to me, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. What is your name? So I introduced myself and she said, and what are the four guys? And I said, oh, it's, and this is where I was concerned. She was now going to go into this. She wrote them down on the front of her pad. And she said, when they get here, tell them to ask for Amy or whatever her bloody name was. And I went, I absolutely will have a great night. Then I went back to the club, walked into the club, walked up to the table. And I said, hey, boys, you still want to go to that party? I've made a phone call and I've got you in. And they were like, oh, fantastic. I said, yeah, I've got to smooth a couple of palms, 500 bucks per person. And they bounced up and just, and I remember this so vividly, they bounced up and started throwing the hundred dollars onto the table. Now for me, it only amounted to two grand, but to me, you could have been unloading a suitcase with a million bucks. I was like, hang on. I've just spent a hundred dollars chatted with someone and I've netted 1900 bucks out of this. That's a good return on investment. I realized then that people don't pay to get into places. They pay to save themselves the embarrassment of getting declined. And that was one of my big lessons. So from then on, I started charging for everything. And the dumb thing was, the more I charged, the more eager they were to go. Then I started closing the club and opening up an after-hour section. And then it got bigger and my network got bigger. Then I started taking over... Uh, small locations. And then I went for yachts and penthouses and mansions. And I started throwing these big events and only inviting billionaires and millionaires. Why? Because I knew poor people could never afford me because I was poor. And there was no way in the world. And here's one of the, the little tweaks. And it's still, it's still the same today. You need a liquor license when you're selling alcohol at an event. Okay. If you give it away, you don't need a liquor license. So I went from charging what would have been like a hundred bucks per person to get into a party. I was charging them from $1,000 per person and all the food and drink inside was complimentary. You know, so I didn't need any of the licenses, but when you're charging someone a thousand dollars to get into a party, guess the caliber of people that you've suddenly got in that room. You know, so it just suddenly started growing from there. And I was like, ah, I'm starting to see how they work, how, how they tweak. And so that's how it started. It sounds like the mindset of people, uh, individuals who are afraid to be rejected, too afraid to get the no, is, is what needs work on the most. And it sounds like you don't have that fear of rejection. How do you overcome <laughs> that fear of rejection, Steve? Because, it, you know, that is one of the things a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is a client's going to tell them no, or they get a few no's in a row, and then suddenly they lose their mojo. And it sounds to me as if that's not an issue for you. How did you develop that? So I'm laughing because this was a point of my life where I was nearly getting a divorce. Um, I met my wife when she was 16 and I was 17. So we've been together forever. And we were having a dinner party, uh, you know, a few years back now. And we had uh, a whole bunch of friends with us. And one of them was uh, Jim Quick. 
And if you don't know Jim, he's, he's brilliant. Um, you know, Google him up. He's a fantastic guy, very smart, works with a lot of very high, prof- uh, high profile people like, um, oh God, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Aerosmith, um, Will Smith, you know, the whole, he's really tied into that crowd. And, but he focuses on superhero strength and superpowers and he loves Marvel and all that kind of stuff. So he turned around and part of the conversation over dinner was what is your superpower? And so he addressed me and he said, Steve, what do you think your superpower is? You've worked with everyone from Elon Musk to the Vatican. What do you think your superpower is? You know, if you had to be, have a cape, you know, and fly, what would it be? So I was sitting there in front of all my friends and my peers and people who I admire deeply, trying to think of something like, you know, some superhero strength that I had. And my wife turned around and she said, he has the superpower of ignorance. Hmm. And in front of my friends, and they kind of looked at her and kind of raised their eye. And I'm thinking in front of all of my peers and friends, you've just called me ignorant. I'm not quite sure if we're going on after this day. Um, you know what? And Jim jumped and he went, care to expand, which I'm bloody glad he did. And she said, absolutely. She said, so many people are frightened of trying something that it holds them back. Not Steve. Steve doesn't think about anything. He does. He makes mistakes, learns from them, classes it as education, then does it again. He doesn't get held back by everyone else ceilings, parameters, myths, beliefs, concepts. He just does. He's ignorant to the point that he can't fail. And so he's always going through. And she turned around and she addressed the table. She said, you know the stuff Steve's done. He sent people down to the Titanic. He's closed museums. He's been in the the Pentagon, Harvard. How many of you have heard something that he's done and gone, how the hell did he pull that off? And they were like, absolutely. So for one, I wasn't going to divorce her now, but I realized that I didn't overthink, I overdid. And so while everyone is petrified and the, the horrible thing about fear is it grows really, really, really fast. You know, when you look at something, you go, oh, that looks a bit scary. 10 seconds later, that fear is amplified If you don't do it within the next five minutes, you'll never do it because that fear is just too big. You can't get over it. So fear grows really, really quick. And I actually just did a posting on my Instagram page this morning, funny enough, and it's from the classic movie Point Break. And there's a quote in there that says, fear causes hesitation and hesitation will cause your worst fears to come true. So I'm never frightened of anything. Now, that's led me to a ton of mistakes, ton of rejections. But when you succeed at something, do you remember how many times you failed at it? Or do you remember the glowing glory of when it finally came off? And so have I failed at anything? No, I've just got educated a million times on how to finally make it work. So ignorance was was what what went forward now, i remember jay abraham once said to me that i have a greater i can than an iq and so i don't know if i'm being politely insulted by everyone that knows me or should i just be proud that i just do i will take a greater i can than a greater iq any day steve 
any day. Yep. So, you know, it sounds to me like overcoming obstacles is is really all up here. And I'm pointing to my brain yep. and my head. And, you know, it's all in your head. And that fear of rejection or fear of what could happen is way bigger than it actually is. You know, I remember as a kid, I used to be terrified. And I, I don't think I shared this story with you last time we spoke, but I used to be terrified of flying. And to the point of, I couldn't get on an airplane without having to be drugged. Like I had to get a prescription from a doctor to be able to fly commercially because I was so frightened of what if, right? And my, my wife and I always tell our kids, we don't focus on what if, we focus on what is. And because what ifs don't happen, what ifs are a possibility, but not a probability. And, but as a kid, I was so terrified that I couldn't get over that. And as a young adult, I couldn't travel on airplanes. And one day a talk show host friend of mine, Preston Westmoreland says, you know, Spanky goes, you got to get on the airplane with me. And he's a, he was a pilot. He had his own plane. He goes, you got to go fly with me. I'm like, Preston, you are never going to get me on that fucking plane. There is no way I like that thing only seats six people. I can't even get on a plane that has hundreds of seats with big engines. You want me to get on a plane that has a propeller in the front of it? No way. Uh-uh. But I did. And I was nauseous. And I was going to puke. And I got in that plane anyway. And I took the controls and I was paralyzed. Paralyzed so much so that like sweat started pouring out of my skin everywhere. I was drenched. And I realized that this is really unhealthy. And what am I fearing? This plane is, I'm in the air, like I'm flying with him. There's nothing to fear here. And at the end of that flight, he said to me, he goes, you know what you need to do to get over this fear? He says, you need to go take some flying lessons. And he goes, and I don't, I don't mean like, you know, just go and take a casual flight. Go take some flying lessons. Find an instructor that you can work with to help you get over this fear. I'm like, God damn it, Preston, fuck you for doing this to me. And I did. I found an instructor and he was a retired Air Force pilot. And I remember going up on that first flight and he said, so tell me what you're afraid of. And I said, well, if the engine quits that the plane's going to crash. And so we were over this practice area, thousands of feet up in the air. And he basically put the engine at a windmill speed, meaning the propeller is just spinning, but it's not generating any thrust. And I'm freaking out. I am screaming. And he showed me how the airplane can just glide and taught me to, to, that nothing's going to happen if the engine fails. You just coast, right? You, you deal with what is, not with what could be. You deal with what is. And as I started to deal with what is, I was more comfortable with it. And then we went for another flying lesson a couple of days later. And he put the plane in a spin and showed me how to get out of a spin. And a couple of days later, we did another, another flight. And over the course of several months, I accidentally became a pilot and <laughs> I soloed and then I got my pilot's license. And, but I got over that fear by not allowing that fear to control me because you can have fears are just thoughts. They're not the actual truth. A fear is just something that your mind creates and amplifies, as you said, and yep. mine amplified me to a point of paralysis. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs will paralyze themselves with different things in different areas of their life because of fear. Mm -hmm. And it is the one thing I believe that holds so many people back. It's why as a fat kid, I wasn't afraid to ask out the hot girls. I didn't have fear of rejection. 
I saw all the other guys were afraid to ask them. And I'm like, well, if you're not going to ask them, I will. Yep. And, and so I think that there's a, there's an inherent mindset that you have to, how do you develop that mindset? Steve, that has got to be the number one challenge for people as they're, as they're developing their entrepreneurial, going through their entrepreneurial journey, developing their business. How do you shift your mindset to overcome fear? So the first thing, okay, we're living in a transactional society. You actually exposed it earlier on in this podcast by accident when you mentioned Alexa and your machine started. Um, we're in a system now where we've got Amazon, Alexis, Siri. We are, we are getting used to barking out commands and having people sort them out. If you think I'm wrong, try and phone up Amazon today and say that you want to change the toilet roll you get and which one are they suggesting. You ain't going to get through to anybody, okay? So we're in a transactional society. If your business doesn't need a conversation, doesn't need you to look into a solution for them, then Amazon is just waiting to take over your business and you're going to be unemployed and flipping me burgers by the weekend. So what we've got to do to get over that is you've got to do everything that Amazon does and everything it doesn't. And what it doesn't do is think, create, and try, okay? So that's what you've got to do. You've always got to give the client more than what they ask for. I always say, never give a client what they ask for. Give them what they need, lust, and desire for. Give them more. If you're selling a cake, give them a cake and give them some cupcakes as well. If you're selling someone a car service, then do an upgrade, rotate the tires, or give them something extra that they didn't expect they were getting to gain that. So what I realized this was, was going for stupid. And I often coin that, that, that little term, go for stupid. There's a lot of people out there that say, go for the impossible. Well, that's like saying, go for the brick wall or go for the dead end. You've already validated that it's impossible. So like it or not, in your subconscious, you're going, well, that's impossible. Why give yourself that ceiling? Go for stupid. Now, when a client has asked me something, I've gone, okay, what's the most ridiculous, stupid thing that I could try? And I go for it. And do you know what? I fail a gazillion times. But then I try the next thing below that. The next thing below. And I end up getting maybe the fifth thing that I asked for. But it's still 20 million miles further than what the client originally asked for. And I've got loads of stories where people have gone, hey, I'd like to meet you know, Guns N' Roses and I've arranged a drum lesson with them. I'd like to you know, meet a ZZ Top and I've arranged a uh, guitar lesson. I love the group's um, Z um, journey. Can you get me front row tickets? No, I'm gonna put you on stage and you're gonna sing with them. I've always gone for the extreme. And right. the daft thing that happens is when you start trying, and going for stupid, don't go for impossible. Next time, anyone listening to this, next time you're going to try anything in your advertising, your events, your offers, go for stupid. And a strange thing happens. You start achieving it. And you know what happens when you start achieving it? That's your new level, your new benchmark. And then all of a sudden, everything starts happening and you start climbing on it. I am a uneducated bricklayer from London that was kicked out of school at the age of 15. And I've closed down museums, works with celebrities, and have clients to own things like countries. If I can do it, you're already out of excuses. 
I love that. Go for stupid. And that is just such a solid note. Steve, if people want to get in touch with you, follow you, uh, read your, your books, follow your daily content, give me the best way to get people to connect with Steve Sims. Well, if you want to jump in, I've got an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims. That's our free Facebook page. Uh, I do a lot of communication in there. If you want to visit stevedsims.com, that'll show you how you can get a copy of the Art of Making Things Happen book. And it'll also show you, you know, how to find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. It's all under Steve D. Sims, and there's only one M in Sims. And I got to recommend Bluefish for anyone who wants to really understand your story and how you went from laying bricks to moving mountains, because to me, that is the most remarkable story. And I love the entrepreneurial spirit in you. And we still have to get together for a drink when this whole we COVID do. situation dies down. It's got to be done. Got to be done. All right, Steve, thanks for coming on the Entree Grow podcast. I wish you well. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I look forward to uh, catching up with you again soon. There you go. That was fantastic. You are just, you're, you're on point all the time. <laughs> well, I think it has something to do with uh, the, uh, the low balls you throw. So, uh, you know. <laughs> Trust me, it's a two, it's a two way street. So I appreciate you. All right, how are you doing? Everybody good? Family yeah, good? Yeah, it's uh, it's been really good. You know, we've done a lot of spring cleaning when COVID started because yeah. uh, I didn't want to waste time. And that spring cleaning went from the house to the garage to my business to my head to my life to my values. So it's been beautiful. Um, but I'm stunned at how many people are wasting this uh, beautiful time that we have. You know, it's amazing to me. I, there are a lot of people right now who are sitting there binge watching shit and when they could be out making stuff happen. And there's so much time right now to build something, the next amazing thing. And they're just sitting there doing nothing. You can't tell everybody, you know, they're, they're going to do what they do. Uh, and it is what it is. So you've just got to let people on their own sometimes. You're getting good motorcycle time? I am. We actually, uh, because you don't get the weekends to end the week, that's, that's probably was the first thing that happened. We noticed that we were working every day. And before you realized it, you were working on the Saturday and the Sunday, just like you were every other day, because there was no release. You yeah. couldn't go to a restaurant on a Friday night to celebrate the end of the week. You couldn't go out with mates on a Saturday. So we lost that. So what we did was we invented taco runs. And we would literally, because my, my son rides as well, he's 23. So we'd get all four of us, my wife and my youngest, on two bikes. Mm -hmm. And we would try a different taco stand somewhere on the beach. Love and that. we've done like about 20 taco runs. Uh, and they've been really good. Every week, we go for a different taco ride somewhere. So it's been really cool. And we've really been enjoying it. Well, I hope uh, things keep going smoothly for you. And uh, I look forward to circling back somewhere down the road, my friend. Look off self, pal. Speak soon. Take care. Podcast listeners, if you got value out of this podcast episode, do me a favor. Let other people know about it. Give it a share. Give it a like. Go to iTunes and leave a review. Let people know how much great value you're getting from it.